thank you, Debbie. Uh, I invite you to open your Bibles to today's scripture reading, which is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. When you are there, please be upstanding for the reading of God's Word. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, starting at verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him, that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am too ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This was the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Speak, O Lord. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word take your truth plant it deep in us shape and fashion us in your likeness that the light of christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Amen. Will you join me in prayer once
once more. Father in heaven, we thank you that this day we can gather among with our family and friends and with the saints to worship you, to rest in you. And we ask, Lord, as we do so, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and allow our hearts to grasp the things that you have set aside for your holy people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, the Sotheby in New York. Is it okay if I talk about New York? I know that's Pastor C. I know that's your territory. I should have had my people reach out to you and iron all this stuff. Anyway, we'll deal with the legal stuff later. Uh, I'm going to give an illustration about uh, a place in New York. A few years ago, Sotheby's, which is located in New York's headquarters, was auctioning a piece of history. They were in possession of a Stradivarius viola that was made in the 1700s by the Italian master craftsman Antonio Stradivari, who is believed to be the greatest maker of string instruments to have ever lived. In the world where wood and string meet together to make music, there is nothing like the Stradivarius. Legends of heavenly endowment suggest that Antonio held the secret to crafting the most beautiful sounding instruments. And when he died, his secrets went with him. But we are blessed with only a few and finite number of his creations here. And so Sotheby's, a few years back, set out to auction a coveted and prized Stradivarius viola. Tim Ingalls, who is the musical instrument consultant of Sotheby, says that there is nothing, nothing, no other violin, no other made instrument like a Stradivarius. Its depth of tone and its silvery quality to the upper register makes it utterly unique and distinctly recognizable. It's unparalleled, unmatched, and unreplicable. In fact, strads are surrounded by newspaper clippings of unbelievable crimes and covetousness. If you're interested, go ahead and listen to the Planet Money podcast on this episode, and you'll hear funny, hilarious, and criminal behavior surrounding a violin. There have been many stories that involve stealing, smuggling, and stashing, each violin perhaps with its own legend to follow. The one I'm referring to this morning is called, to, it's called the McDonald. And we're told that it was expected to sell at an access of, brace yourselves, $45 million dollars. So in some place, sometime, there gathered aficionados, investors, and undoubtedly some criminals for a blind auction. But the question is, is it truly a one of a kind? Is it worth millions? Does the price tag reflect the fact or the myth? A team of scientists set out to answer this very question. They conducted a blind test. What they did is they collected musicians, they brought them in to a dimly lit room. They had all these different violins laid out. 
Mixed in there was one Strad among some of the other violins that are newer and freshly made or of other brands. These musicians would walk in and they would wear welding goggles in a dim lit room so they couldn't tell exactly what they were picking up except that it was a violin. They went as far as putting perfume on the chin rust so that they could not distinguish the smell and the age of the wood. I guess there's some people who can do that. You know, the people who do the wine. Start mid-century. The Chateau, post-war. I don't know, but they went that far. And so they've conducted this blind experiment. You can imagine people coming in and the two-string things that make it vibrate and sound all magical. They're all the way. They're like, okay, yeah, I know that one. They're playing, they're playing, playing. But it turns out that the data from the study shows that most people in a blind test were not able to spot the Strad. Although everyone was confident that they would be able to recognize the depth of tone in the silvery upper registry, most of them were not able to identify what a $45 million violin would sound opposed to the $100 one you get as an elementary school student at your school that gets banged around all on the bus in the back of the trunk. In fact, when they were asked to pick your favorite instrument, most of the people picked the newer, more modern one, and their least favorite was actually the Strad. Unsurprisingly, this study not only shocked, but offended the whole musical community. Zealots of Antonio Stradivari simply denied the findings. They discredited the scientific method and approach altogether, and they continued to go on to believe the power of the Strad. It seemed as though the myth was stronger than the fact. Now, let me level with you. I, I, I actually played the cello growing up, and I wasn't too good at it, but I was able to get two credits out of it in college. Uh, growing up, I think I shared with some of you in the orchestra, my parents would come, and they could never see me because I was last chair, and all they could see is probably my shoes. So they came to watch the recital, and they saw my shoes. But I know many of us here probably could care less about a violin or Antonio and the myth and legend. We might be entertained, but who cares? It's a violin. But the point I'm trying to make is that oftentimes we get so invested in something, even though much of what we are investing in has no real intrinsic eternal value. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not dogging on the Strad. I don't want to get a hate email or a brick thrown through my window and say, Strad's rule. What I'm saying is many times, whether you're into violence or not, we are very well invested in temporal things of this world that do not last. So much so that we are ready to pour resources, time, money, thought, and our hearts into it. So my question this morning to us is, friends, what are we invested in? What are we invested in this morning? What have you spent the past year devoting yourselves Tinkering with, crafting, mastering, obsessing over, pouring into, checking, refreshing. In our parable today, Jesus is speaking to his disciples who have seemingly given up everything to follow him. 
And he wants to press the question, are you truly invested in the kingdom of God? Are you truly invested in me? Are you following me? Are you ready to go all in? Or have you just simply earmarked and categorized a few items of your life to me and everything else? You're putting it in the bank, putting it in real estate, putting in this and that and that. The question that's pressed upon the disciples to some degree is, are you really invested in the kingdom of God? Things that are eternal and everlasting. So a quick review of the parable here. We're told that there was a rich man and that he had to fire his manager. This manager was dishonest and wasteful with his possessions. And at this time we know that managers weren't some simply uh, employed low-class citizen, but in fact that they acted as in many ways vice regents or represent representatives with the full authority of the owner himself. So this manager had access probably to all of the estates and the accounts, and he was entrusted to manage it well, faithfully. But whatever it means, he was wasteful and dishonest, and so he had to be let go. Upon hearing this news, the, the manager is scared, and he himself in this parable says, well, what am I going to do? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm, I'm too prideful to beg. Perhaps, this, perhaps we're, we're to understand he, he doesn't have the physical ability to go into the labor force, and, and that he has simply too much pride and experience and, and resume accolades to sit on the street and, and, and beg for a living. And so he comes up with a plan. He says, oh, I know what I'll do. He calls all the people who are indebted to his master. He says, come, one by one. The first one he calls. He says, how much do you owe my master? And the debtor says, a hundred measures of oil. And the manager says to him, quickly, take your bill and write 50. Cuts it in half. The second one calls him in. How much do you owe my master? A hundred measures of wheat. And the manager tells him, sit down quickly, take your bill and write 80. Well, first of all, if I was a second, I'm like, yo, man, you gave Bartholomew 50% off, man. You give me 20? What's the deal here? What's going on? We don't know. I don't know the commerce back in the day. But what we're told is that the discount or the dishonesty equated to about 20 months wages. And so what this manager is doing, right, and some of you are astute like a criminal and like me, what he's thinking is, I can't work, I'm not going to beg, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put those people who are indebted to my master now in my favor. I'm going to scratch their back, and later when I need it, they'll scratch mine. And so he is shrewd, calculating, smart, witty, in self-preservation, and he goes through this plan. Then, having found out what the manager did, this is what the master says. Look up with me in verse 8. A bit curious, but here we go. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Interesting response by the master. What are we to make of it? Well, traditionally, there's been three explanations. First, perhaps the manager was giving a discount at his own cost. Maybe he's saying, hey, you know what, how much do you owe, 100? You know what, I'm going to take my commission out of it, just write 80, and I'll take the hit. What do you owe, 100 wheat? Hey, I'll take the hit here, write down 80. Well, that doesn't seem to make sense because the amount is so 
huge, that it wouldn't make sense that he's simply at his own cost taking away his own commission. Second possibility. The debts were so large to collect at once, this manager being smart said, you know what, I don't want my master to wait around years and years and years for these people to pay him back. I'll just cut it in half to a manageable debt so they can pay him immediately and he'll have a sudden influx of cash flow. Right? He's going to liquidate it right away. This also seems unlikely because we are told that all this manager cares about is self-preservation and not the master's welfare and not his assets. The third option The master commends the manager for his shrewdness, but not his dishonesty. This seems to be the most likely. It's like commending someone for being so consistently ingenious about their own preservation, right? It's a backhanded compliment. It's like when we say of someone, well, you know what? At least he's consistent, man. You know what I mean? At least he's consistent. So what is the point that Jesus is trying to make as he shares this parable with his disciples and as he tells this parable in earshot of the Pharisees who are still there? By telling this parable, he is showing a contrast and comparison between the believers of Christ, who he refers to here as the sons of light, and the non-believers referred to here as the sons of this world. The point seems to hinge on shrewdness, meaning the quality of having or showing good powers of judgment and being astute to navigate a difficult situation here. So then the point is that the sons of this world are more shrewd about temporary things than the sons of light are with eternal things. Let me repeat that. The point Jesus is trying to make is look at these people who simply live for the world. Look how shrewd they are. Yeah, they might be dishonest, but look how much they care and are willing to invest and do whatever they need to do to secure what they think is so valuable to them. If, if, if they are so shrewd in taking care of temporal things, how much more so should the believers of Christ, the children of light, be shrewd in taking care of eternal things? He's not telling us to learn dishonesty telling his disciples to learn what it means to be shrewd about things that matter with an eternal value. Two pitfalls I want to safeguard us from real quick. First, this isn't a license for Christians to take the gospel out by any means necessary. Right? This doesn't mean that all we have to do is preach and, you know, we got to do whatever we need to do to the books and to the numbers Whatever's going on with the laws, we've got to break them. we just got to do whatever we need to do for the kingdom. That's not the mentality here. Our shrewdness and methods should not contradict the holiness of God and the holiness that he calls us to. In fact, our text actually strictly speaks against dishonesty and unrighteousness. But it does support a shrewdness that comes from godly wisdom. The second pitfall I do want to safeguard us from real quick, because it's too easy at this point for us to simply feel guilty as if we're not supposed to invest in anything of this world. So the second pitfall I want to protect us from is that this doesn't mean, and we're not being taught that earthly investments are simply evil. 
In fact, Christians are called to be good stewards, if I can use the term relevant to our text, good managers of our finances, our time, and resources. Why? Because it all comes from the master. The time you have been allotted, the resources you have been given, the blessings that you enjoy, even the difficult moments that you learn from, has been given to you by the master so that you can be good managers of it. You know, most Christians, we are either too careful or too risky and reckless with our blessings. And that's most likely because we fail to see that every good and perfect gift comes from him. So if God is the master and we are the managers, then it points to the fact that we are entrusted with an enormous amount of blessings to steward for the master's gain. And what does the master want to gain? What does God of heaven want? Simple. He wants men and women who desire salvation in him. He desires to save those who call out to him. Remember the story of the prodigal son a few weeks back. The father, or the master of the house, tells his older son, who is bitter and wouldn't come into the party, even though his younger brother came home, the father says to him, says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your younger brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father shows his heart. The father is not worried about his assets, his possessions, his belongings, his net value or worth. All he cares about is that his lost son has come home and he throws a party. And the older brother who threw what's the word I'm looking for? Inheritance. Sorry, blank there would have received everything already is bitter because his heart is not aligned with the master of the house being his father. In many ways, in similar ways, the master has made us managers of his estates so that we would receive salvation through his son. And while we proclaim his son, others would receive salvation in him as well. You see, the inheritance that Christians have, the disciples of Christ have, is the kingdom of God. And this is why we're going through kingdom stories. It's, it's to help us to see the kingdom, glimpses of it, wafts of it, t- tastes of it. So that as we're so here busy with our lives, invested in a numerous amount of categories, that we can remember that our life isn't simply for the temporal and the finite, but it's for eternity. And for God, the inheritance that the disciples, the followers of God and Christ, the sons of light receive is the kingdom of God. It's eternal life, it's eternal home, it's eternal rest, it's eternal safety, and eternal joy. Are these things worth investing in, friends? Things that belong in the eternal realm that the world cannot give or take away, that you cannot lose? That has already been paid by Christ. It is. You ask, how is this all possible? Well, unlike the dishonest manager, and unlike many of us, Jesus is the one true 
faithful servant to the master. And unlike the dishonest manager, and unlike many of us, he doesn't call all those who are indebted to God to come to him to strike a deal and a bargain. Hey, if you believe in me, I'll give you good things. Hey, if you believe in me, I'll give you a good life. If you believe in me, I'll take away your depression. If you believe in me, I'll make all your felt needs better. He doesn't strike a deal. He comes, he calls all those who are indebted to God because of sin. And he doesn't offer a discount. But he gives us life, death on the cross. So that our sins are not simply reduced to a manageable amount. So that our evilness and wretchedness and our prone to wanderness isn't simply cut and minimized, but it's done away with. And he does this not by simply giving up his own commission, but he does this by giving his life in love to those who have been entrusted to him, to those who love him, to those who call out his name for salvation. What a good manager, what a good steward, what a faithful son who brings many sons to glory as we sing. If you look here in Colossians 2, 13 to 14, this is what we're told in support of this truth. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He set aside and he nailed it to the cross so that our sins, our debt would be no more, so that we can truly invest our lives in something that's worth living and dying for. So then application, what does this mean? You see, being sure can be attributed to both, right? Non-Christians and Christians, the sons of this world and the sons of light. The difference here, though, is at the core. The difference here is at the heart level. This is why Jesus ends his parable not with a suggestion, but a fact. He doesn't say you shouldn't, but rather you cannot serve God and money. Look at verse 13 with me. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot. He's not saying, hey, you really shouldn't. It's not wise. It's not preferable. It's not advantageous. He's saying, you cannot. It's not possible to serve God and money. Friends, think about all the temporary and earthly things that we are invested in. Think about how we save and stock and pour into Again, these aren't necessarily bad things. But I think if we're honest, we are so much more invested in temporal earthly things than the eternal everlasting things. If we're honest with ourselves, more often than not, we are in service to money rather than God. We love money more than God. We're devoted to money more than God. But here's the punchline. If we serve God, you don't have to worry about money. I know that's a large ultimate statement. And hopefully I don't have to unpack it. But what I simply mean by that is if you serve God, he provides for you. Of course you have to work. Of course you've got to have a job. And of course, yes, you have to be shrewd in your finances and be smart. 
can be good stewards. But if you serve God, he will provide. I just want, I just want us to quickly, as an exercise, think about how invested, because I didn't realize how invested in this world I was until I just sat there and thought about it, all right? Now, I just fair warning, there's going to be some trigger words. There's going to be some buzzwords that many of us are familiar with. And, you know, I often, as a preacher, like to keep it general. But I thought at this point, you know what, we really got to sit down and think how deeply invested we are. Think about education. Right? Many of us, without a thought, we would ro- relocate our families to this desired school district so that our kids could get a good education. Without a thought, we would save and pour into our children's college fund. Many of us, if you've graduated from college or if you're in there now, we take hundreds and thousands of dollars of loans without second thought. At least I did. I didn't know what I was doing. Mastery promise note. Yeah, I'll pay this back. I'm going to be a pastor. I'm going to be rich. Many of you guys, if you have a graduate level degree, you devoted not four, but most likely eight years of your life to your education. Why? When we buy a home, a 30-year mortgage is a given. It's a given. We look into all these sorts of things before we make that investment. The neighborhood, the community, the HOA, the taxes, the diversity, the crime. We look into the style of home, when it was built. Is it mid-century? Is it, is it New England? Is it American? Is it European? What's the square footage? How many baths does it have? 2.5. We have 3.5. Is it granite? Is it marble? All these things we invest in. Some of you guys are savvy enough, right? You don't just have a day job, but you got a side hustle. You're into crypto, stock, bonds. I don't know anything about this word. I had to Google some of this stuff. You're into bit. I almost, almost said bit, C-O-I-N. I don't know why Bitcoin is just, it's just like we're supposed to whisper it as if it's so holy and reverent. Hey, man, you into Bitcoin? And, 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 so, and so when I looked at this, I, I realized there's all these acronyms. It's code. You're not allowed to just say, hey, man, you see... You see Bitcoin went on, like, yo, man, yo, shh. You mean BTC? Some of you are invested in BTC, ADA, FTM, AAVE, ALGO. Again, I don't know what these, YFI, ABCD, EFG, HIJK, LMNOP, QRS. Some of you guys are deeply invested in this. Stock markets, Tesla, Amazon, Apple, every morning, the Dow Jones, the Dow Jones is up, the Dow Jones is down. It's going to show you how dumb I am. I thought Dow Jones was a rapper. Dow Jones is down again. My goodness, this rap game is still hard out there. Dow Jones is down. We invest in health, our bodies, the gym memberships. Some folks have more than one gym membership. Fitness descriptions, cycle or circle, right, by that famous handsome hunky actor. My fitness pal, Strava. Sorry, mates. We take powders and supplements, herbals, organics, Peloton, hydro rowing machine, Bowflex. If anyone wants to have a Bowflex, entertainment. These are subscriptions that I have, I might not pay for all of them, but I have access to. Right? And, and, I'm, and, I, and I know most of you guys do. Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, HBO, Stars, Apple TV, Disney Plus. These are a few of my favorite things. We laugh, but. We laugh because we're invested in it. Again, it's not a bad thing. You're not supposed to feel guilty. Perhaps come out with an awareness of, you know what, I am so invested in this world. Rest and comfort. You know how many different mattresses are out there? I'm a heavy guy, got lower back issues. 
And I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just out there looking. What is the best mattress for me? Purple, Casper, Nectar, Avocado. They're just making names up now. Tangerine, Sleep Number, Tuft and Needle, Weighted Mattresses. I got a weighted mattress a couple weeks ago. I'm sorry, not mattress, weighted blanket. I got a 20-pound weighted blanket. And I was so convinced. I was so convinced that it was going to give me the best sleep of my life. I put it on. Felt like I couldn't breathe. Felt like I was having kawi. Some of you guys know what that is. I was like, woohoo, man. This, is, this, this blanket is not made for Koreans who are spiritual. It felt like an oppression. But I, I thought for sure this is going to be the best sleep of my life. In fact, maybe I'll just wake up in heaven. And I almost did. That thing is uncomfortable. <laughs> I returned it to Costco, which I know many of us are invested in. <laughs> Let me just stop there. Let me stop here. Again, don't be guilty if you are invested in these things. That's not the point. The point is to show that you and I are so willing and so ready to invest, even if it's promising and growing or popular and broad, we're so quick to invest or, or go in on or to, to, to get for ourselves these things. But, but the myth is that, well, the fact is that all these things have zero value when our time here is done. And so I know, oftentimes, living in the world, six days out of the week, we come Sunday morning, it, sound, it sounds weird and preposterous to talk about eternity and God, but that's why we need to come. Because we need to be reminded that the six days of our lives mean nothing if this one day as we devote to God, our perspectives and our minds are not changed to see what is further beyond than just our tombstones at the end. So let me, give me, let me give us just a practical way to invest in the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be good stewards? Well, we can start by giving God his tithes and offerings. The first thing I'll mention is that tithing and giving offering is a basic thing. It's fundamental. It's elementary. It's the ABCs and the one, two, threes of our faith. And some of us don't know the ABCs and the one, two, threes. Look at Matthew 23, 23. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. I'll stop there. Well, Jesus is basically saying, woe to you, you tithe but you neglect the weightier things. In some ways, Jesus is giving a comparison. You do the basic, the elementary, the foundational things like tithing, but you neglect the weightier. Guys, there are weightier things than tithing and offering, which takes me to my second point. Preachers, pastors, we, we hate talking about tithing and offering and money altogether. We hate it because it feels cheap, it feels like we're simply guilt-tripping people or begging them for support to fund some kind of project that the church is in. We feel like we got to give you our mission statement, our vision statement, all the things that we're going to do. We're trying to get investors. We feel so cheap and silly because, because we feel like if we talk about money from the pulpit, that, that, that people are just going to feel guilty. And then you guys are just think all we care about is money. But we're not a, we're not a GoFundMe. 
It's, it's not a Kickstarter. It's not a matter of charity. This is not Shark Tank. Tithing is not about any of that. Tithing is simply about, do you believe in God? That's a harsh statement. Tithing is about faith. Tithing doesn't ultimately show your commitment to the church and its values and core values, right? It, it does to some degree, but it ultimately, it, tithing does not show you your commitment to the church. It shows your commitment to God. Tithing doesn't ultimately show you your trust in the church, although that's important. The church should be handling the funds well. But it doesn't ultimately show you your trust in the church. It shows you your trust in God. Tithing doesn't show you how much you're giving to the church, as if it's a membership due or, or, or whatever, whatever the concept might be. Tithing doesn't show you how much you give to the church. It shows you how much you have received from God. end of the day, tithing, if you don't tithe, you're not robbing me, you're not robbing the church, you're robbing God. Look at Malachi 3, 8 through 10 with me. And we'll start to close with this. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. You know why pastors are afraid to talk about tithing? Because we are under the false notion that tithing somehow has to do with our salary, our financial support, and the church, and the donuts, and the money around the church. No, tithing ultimately at the end of the day has to do with you and God. If you don't tithe, I don't have anything against you. It doesn't hurt me. But I do, in care for your soul, want you to know that tithing is between you and the Lord. And this is what God says, right? God says, put me to the test. I don't think there's any other place in Scripture Right? In fact, it says, don't put your Lord God to the test. But here God says to his people, put me to the test. And, and see if I won't open up the windows of heaven and pour down on you blessings. What God is saying, almost in a rebuking but loving, tender way, I know you're scared. I know you're afraid. I know it's tight. But trust me. Test me even. And see if I don't bless you. Test me, the Lord says, and I will bless you. That's his promise. You know, I want to conclude by just confessing that this is really hard. This is really hard. I usually tithe in the first of the month, you know, when it comes in. Um, in the business and perhaps in some neglect, I didn't yet. <laughs> some of our finances, yeah, I know, Pastor Wong, we're waiting for it. I haven't tithed yet. Uh, this month, like many of us in December, having spent on many other people, it's tight. It's tight. And I thought, man, would, it, would God be mad <laughs> if we just go through December like this? And then I remembered this. And I remembered all the other times where I did, in fact, test the Lord. The times when it was tight, the 
times when it was slim, times when it was thin, I gave to the Lord what already belonged to him and said, yes, Lord, I trust you. Will you open your storehouses? And I don't, I'm not one to give magnificent accounts of testimonies, but I will say very simply, in all the times that I've tested the Lord in this matter, he has proven himself as a father who loves and provides, a master who takes care of his servants. And so, friends, God has given us life in Jesus so that we don't have to live simply for the temporary things. We cannot serve God and money, but if we serve God, all other provisions we need will come. Friends, can we live and invest in the eternal, the everlasting, the kingdom? As we know, in Christ, he gives us bread and he gives us wine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the master of all things and that you give to us all things and that you are always with us. And we confess, Lord, that we are often doubtful, scared, and calculating. And we ask that you would provide to those who need provision. We also ask, Lord, that you would move by the Holy Spirit, not by the words of man or by emotions, but by the Holy Spirit, those whom you will call to deeper faithfulness in giving back to you what already belongs to you. We thank you, Lord, that we inherit a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a rest that is everlasting, a peace that is never ending, and a place where we can live where there is no more tears. We ask